Good morning. Good morning. Hey, guys. Good morning. It's good to see you guys all this morning. My name is Levi Scott, as my beautiful wife said, and I'm the student director here at Fellowship Nashville, and I'd like to welcome you guys this morning, and if you're joining us via our live stream this morning, I'd like to welcome you here as well. Uh, We are continuing our sermon series through the book of John with a look at John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Uh, But before we roll into the text, I wanted to uh, pose a question for you guys this morning, just to kind of mull over in your brains before we dive in. Uh, Have you ever taken the time to to think about what, what is the motivation, what drives you in your decision-making, even in the day-to-day moments? What is the thing that is, is behind the decisions you make in the day-to-day? Um, I was trying to think of a fun story to tell, thinking about that. It's like, like what, what drives me? And the, one of the first things that I thought of was my brother, my brother Jacob and our cousins, we used to do, we're still super-duper-duper close, and we used to do spend the nights all the time. And whenever we were really little, we would, you know, you got all your new toys you got or you knew like Game Boy games or whatever. And we would just pile them all into like a grocery bag and bring it to the spend the night. And we'd be oh, we and we would trade with each other. Be like, oh, I got this new Spider-Man. I'll trade you for your Batman. Oh, my gosh. And every single time, whenever we would, whenever we would do that, uh, my brother and I, we always had these like unique little Lego sets that our cousins always really wanted. And so our cousins are literally like stacking up like, like three, four, five different Game Boy games for like one little Lego piece. They're like, we'll trade you all of this for one little Lego piece. And my brother and I were, you know, we're like, I don't know. And they're like, well, six Lego. Oh, okay, fine, we'll do it. Six Game Boy games, it's fine. We got in really big trouble for it, but it was. But I always, I was, I'd always laugh thinking about that because in that moment, in that eight, nine, ten-year-old moment, the thing that they wanted more than anything in the world, it doesn't make sense to us now, but for some of you, it might make sense, that you, I will give you everything I have, all of these Game Boy games, all of these very expensive electronics for just one little, one little Lego piece. It doesn't make sense, but in that moment, that was that motivation for that eight, nine, ten-year-old. In a moment, we're going to have a really cool opportunity to examine the inner affections and the desires in two unique characters in this story that we're about to dive into. And while they're extremely different in the gospel narrative, there's a lot of interesting similarities, specifically two, between these two characters, between Mary Magdalene and Judas Iscariot. These two similarities being, number one, they both exhibit an overflowing affection and worship towards something in this story. And number two, because of this worship, they both expose their hearts in a real, tangible way. So we'll dive into that here in a little bit, but I just want you all to keep that in your brain as we are about to dive into the text. So grab your Bibles, open up to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, and we'll have it up on the screens for you guys as well. Y'all can read along with me. In your brains, I'm going to read it to you. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. 
Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was being put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Y'all pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this gorgeous day and for the ability for us to gather together, Lord. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you give us open minds and open hearts to experience exactly what you want us to out of this text. We love you so much, God. It's because you loved us first. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Just as a refresher from last week, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead and can no longer safely walk around in public because the chief priests are seeking to arrest him. So Jesus and his disciples make their way to the city of Ephraim to get out of the public eye for a little bit. And this is where our story picks up in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I'll have a slide up there for you guys. Uh, Mark had this last week as well. A little, little context where Bethany is and how close that is to Jerusalem. We are a mere six days away from the Passover, and we see Jesus making his way back to Bethany, where he had raised his good friend Lazarus from the dead. In the text, we see it immediately begin with this word, therefore, which more often than not is an indication of a cause. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. Why did he come back to Bethany? Because he had just raised a man from the dead, and we literally read in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, verse 54, that Jesus was in hiding in Ephraim to get out of the public eye. So why would he be coming back to literally the hot spot of debatably the greatest miracle to date. Why on earth would he do that? It clearly shows that he was trying to get out of the way for a little bit. It's because it's time. We are mere six days away from Good Friday, from the crucifixion, and Jesus knows that his time is fast approaching to take on the sins of the world. It is time to move. He's on his way to Jerusalem right now. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Jesus arrives in Bethany, and they throw him a party. But it's not just any party. They're not just kind of hanging out or whatever. This is a celebration in direct response to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And for those of us raised in the church, including myself, oftentimes I can read stories like this, like Lazarus being raised from the dead, more famous stories that are known pretty well even outside of the church. And we don't truly appreciate what's happening in the story. We have got to put ourselves in this context. We've got to experience what they're experiencing. A man has literally been raised from the dead. He was dead for four days, no heartbeat, 
in the grave, and now he's alive again. We read that we're just like, yeah, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. But he was de- if that happened today, we would be freaking out. He was dead for four days, and he clawed his way out of the grave, and he's here. Like that, That's not possible, and it happened. So Jesus deserves to be celebrated. They have Jesus sitting at the place of honor right next to Lazarus, reclining at table, and Martha is serving. As a total aside, the narrative doesn't necessarily focus on Martha. We're not going to spend a ton of time on Martha. But praise God for people like Martha. I, 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 I'm sure you guys know a couple Marthas. I know a couple Marthas. People who are willing to forego the spotlight, the festivities, to make sure other people are taken care of, to make the sacrifice. And because of Martha and people like Martha in this moment, we get to see Mary have the ability to do something that is utterly extraordinary. Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Another therefore. Jesus there, or excuse me, Mary, therefore. Jesus is here at the party. Therefore, Mary goes and grabs the expensive ointment. We are told that there is a pound of this ointment, and the Roman pound is roughly 11 to 12 ounces. So, visual aid, uh, should be thinking about something like this. Isn't that weird? It's, it makes it so much more real this way, at least for me it does. We should be thinking about a can of Coke. So there's, there is some debate, like uh, the Roman pound, some people say 11, some people say 11 and a half, some people say 12, so can of Coke, really easy to remember. I'm, it's just, it's so, it's so wild, at least for me, to, to see that and be like, that's how much ointment there was. It was made of, it, or it, rather, it contained pure nard. And pure nard is a very valuable and very fragrant essential oil from India. And Mary takes it and pours this ointment on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And for those of you who use perfume or cologne or whatever, 12 ounces of that stuff is very, very potent, and it's no surprise that Scripture tells us that it filled the fragrance filled the whole house. As 21st century readers, we kind of miss the significance of what a foot washing really is. Normally, this was an activity that was specifically for hired servants because it's disgusting. Washing people's feet is disgusting. People living in the ancient Near East were either wearing sandals or maybe walking around barefoot. And it was a a pre-indoor plumbing world where animals had their way with the roads, so they were stepping in a lot of stuff. So their feet were gross. Contrast that with what she's cleaning Jesus' feet with. She's cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair. Most of us wear shoes and socks for the better part of a day, and I highly, highly doubt anybody would be willing to clean somebody's feet with their hair. It's th- that's gross. For this party, Mary's hair was probably washed, probably done up all nice and pretty, and she takes it down to wash feet, getting, probably getting chunks in it and grime and dirt and whatever. I know it's gross, but we can't miss the significance of what is happening right now. Verse 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. In this verse, we truly realize how much this ointment is actually worth. It's worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarii is worth roughly about a day's wages in the ancient Near East. And the work day in that time also was about a 12-hour day. So to put it into Tennessee context, 7.25 an hour minimum wage. Again, minimum wage is different depending where you go, but for Tennesseans, that's what helps us. 7.25 an hour, 12 hours a day for 300 days is $26,100. Can you, like, $26,100. Holy actual smokes. That is insane. Like, seriously. There is some speculation on how Mary would have gotten her hands on something this valuable. Not Coke valuable, but Nard valuable. Some options include that it could have been a fairly heirloom, could have been part of the family savings. There's a chance that it was an emergency fund. They would have uh, uh, piled up their resources and purchased an, uh, an item that they could have stored a lot better. Um, there's a possibility that she could have been saving it for her wedding day, possibly a dowry. And in this, these few verses, we also learn about our next character in the narrative. We learn about Judas Iscariot. Now, even if you aren't a Christian, you probably know who Judas Iscariot is. He's, he's one of, like for most people, he's like a, a top three like, archetypes of a traitor, like in all written history. Like people know who Judas is. And Judas, as you know, is one of the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus to walk with him during this time of ministry. And we see him have concern for the poor or at least it seems that way. Thankfully, uh, the author, John, gives us a little bit in, of insight into actually what's happening, uh, that he didn't actually care about the poor. He was a thief, and he liked to dip his hand in the cookie jar. And if this money had been sold or given to the poor or maybe given to Jesus' ministry, he could have had his way with it. 300, 300 days' wages is a lot of, of money to play with. Now, We've introduced our two characters, so I'm going I'm to pull that slide back up of, of the similarities between the two. Number one, they both exhibit overflowing affection and worship towards something. And number two, because of this worship, they both expose their hearts in a very tangible way. Now, before we get into the specifics of each character in the narrative, I want to give you a general definition real quick. When I say worship, I don't mean just singing. Okay, a lot of times when I like worship, when I think of like worship, singing is the first thing that pops into my mind. But and singing is a very important part of worship, a very important part of worship. But that doesn't get to the whole definition of what it is. It would be like if you said, "Hey Levi, what's football?" and I said, "Field goals." Like field goals is an impart, a part of football. It's an important part of football, but it doesn't fully encapsulate what worship is. Worship is the valuing and adoration of something. This is just a kind of a general thing. Worship is the valuing or adoration of something or someone above all other things. The thing that has the attention of our mind and the affection of our hearts and, more often than not, the direction of our wallets. So if you go into your bank account and look what you've spent your money on, odds are that's probably what has your affection. So... True worship is the valuing or adoration of God above all other things. That's true worship. 
Okay, what does that mean practically? If you love something or value something above anything, what would you do for them? I'm going to use a, a, a Mark Irving tactic here. Oftentimes he'll ask the, the reverse of the question to get even deeper into what we're asking. What wouldn't you do for them? If you, really lo- if you love something or someone more than anything, what wouldn't you do for them? Human beings were created for worship. And we will either worship God or we will worship something else. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 3, the Lord tells us point blank, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. This commandment does not imply that there's an option to worship nothing. Like worshiping nothing is not an option given. Something will always capture our thoughts, our emotions and passions, our affections and desires, and our behaviors and choices. Whatever captivates our hearts will become the object of our worship. True worship is the valuing or adoration of God above all things. Both of these characters exhibit overflowing affection in worship and, as a result, really expose their hearts. So we're going to start with Judas. So before we dive in, but, uh, there's a slide, but I don't want to put it up yet, not yet. I want you guys to think about, when I, think of, when, you, when I say Judas, when I say Judas, I want you guys to picture in your mind like what, what visual pops in your head when you think about Judas? Okay, you can put the slide up. This is from the... <laughs> I want y'all to take a wild guess at which one of these guys is Judas. Is it the guy in the middle that's like, obviously that's Jesus, you know, big, hey, and then everybody's like, man, we're so excited to talk to you, Jesus. And then there's... The, it's clearly the guy on the outside, like, Jesus, oh, like, I hate this guy, or he's the worst. Or he's like, at least for me, I picture a guy with like his money bag, and he's like, ooh, yeah, look at money I've got. I can't wait to spend it on all these. I, I don't know. A pure nar. I don't know what he would buy, but just all this stuff. I can't wait to buy it. At least that's what I picture in my brain. We forget that Judas was with Jesus in ministry for three years, for three full years. He was put in charge of the money. Like, there's 11 other guys that are part of this squad. They're not going to give him the money unless he was seen as somewhat trustworthy. Obviously, Jesus knew everything. Jesus knew that, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. But there, these, there's 11 other guys who are like, well, we should put Judas in charge of the money. They wouldn't do that with someone who is clearly not trustworthy. He was actively participating in this ministry. In Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, we see Jesus send the disciples out in twos to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and he doesn't say, well, except for Judas, because he is the worst. The leaven, you can go out, but Judas, he's awful. He has to stay behind. Judas, Judas was actively participating. He was one of the people going out. Jesus gives them authority to heal the sick and cast out demons. Judas is there doing this stuff with the disciples. Even in this narrative, we see him sitting close enough to Jesus to ask him a question or to make or rather make a comment about about the dinar, about the pure nard. He's not like far away in the corner. He's sitting with Jesus. And he's been sitting with Jesus for 3 4 years. Judas has not only witnessed the dead being made alive again, but he has also walked with the Son of God for three years. I know I'm harping on it, but I think we forget about that. 
The whole gospel narrative, Judas is there watching this stuff happen. The walls are starting to close in around Jesus. His foretold death is creeping closer and closer. And what does Judas get concerned about? Money. He wants money. His mentioning of the poor is not genuine. He is a thief. It is a cover-up for his greed. Like I said earlier, he is dipping his hand in the cookie jar. He wants money, not Jesus. His heart is being pulled to money, even in the presence of God himself. That is absolutely terrifying. How many people, or, and don't, don't answer this or raise your hands, just, just think about it in your ways. How many people in, do you know, or maybe you've said it yourself in your own heart, of, man, I just wish, if, if Jesus was here, if he, if, he, if he came down, he just told me. Well, okay, if I, all right, well, if, if Jesus... If Jesus could just come down and then he would just say blah, 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 okay, then I would trust him. If I could just see, then I would believe. If he just told me straight. Mark chapter 4, verses 33 through 34 says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them, and they were able to hear it. They did not speak to them without parables, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Jesus Jesus explained everything straight to Judas. Judas was there. Judas knew. He was in the presence of God, and he was more worried about his checkbook than his own soul, let alone this clear, unhindered, joy-filled worship from Mary. It just goes to show you guys, you can grow up in the most intimate of Christian communities and still completely miss Jesus. I don't care how tight-knit or, or... He was in God's presence for three years. It doesn't matter. Like, you can completely miss him even if you are staring, literally staring God in the face. And in less than a week, Judas will sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And this is roughly about 120 denarii, which is less than half of what this ointment is worth. It's heartbreaking. On a more positive and happy note, we have Mary. Mary, who was not one of the 12, she hung out with Jesus a lot, but she wasn't always with Jesus. But she did witness a man have power and authority over death itself. So what does she do? She walks over to her special spot. She grabs the most expensive thing she has, and she anoints the feet of the king of the universe. An absolutely lavish display of affection that could literally be experienced by everybody in the house. How unbelievably true is that of true worship? True worship will be experienced by everybody in the room. An unbelievable display of worship. An entire year's wages gone. Like that. And she she didn't care. For some listening to this passage, you may be thinking, that's, that's a little excessive. Like again, like perfume, ointment, cologne, whatever, it's like really strong. Even if you cut it with water, it's still really strong. Why did she have to dump the whole thing, the whole can of Coke? Why did she have to dump the whole thing on his feet? Couldn't she have 
held like a decent portion or still anointed Jesus with just a little bit? It's a fair question. It honestly is. Like, I, I've been asked the same thing. Like, why? Like, Mary probably isn't rich. Most likely, she's not a super wealthy person. So why would she seemingly waste all of this ointment? Does Mary care how much she's using? Of course she doesn't. Of course she doesn't. Who else deserves this affection and anointing more than the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? There isn't a second thought. By the grace of God, her brother is alive. This man raised her brother from the dead. Lord, I want to give you everything. I want you to have all of it. You deserve it. So she gives him everything. Not just this ointment, but also her life. She gives it all. Jesus, I want you. You're mine. I'm sure many of you are also asking the question, this is something as a kid I asked all the time that I was just like, I don't get it. Why not use a towel? Why her hair? Why do you have to use your hair? Like literally, literally a chapter later, we're going to see Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And it says he used a towel. Like if Jesus is going to use a towel, son of God using a towel, why can't Mary use a towel? Why wouldn't she have used a towel? A fancy rag equivalent to the ointment. I don't know. In John chapter 21, we see some of the disciples fishing shortly after the death of Jesus. Spoiler alert. And a man is on the shore telling them to cast their nets into seemingly empty water on the other side, and they end up receiving a boatload of fish. And they soon recognize that the man on the shore is their Jesus. So what does Peter do? You guys know the story. What does Peter do? He sees Jesus. What does he do? He jumps in the water. He dives in the water and sprints to Jesus. Scripture tells us that they are barely 100 yards away from the shore. It is way more practical to just stay in the boat and get the fish in and make your way back. It probably would have been just as fast. Maybe. It just isn't practical. He probably got there. He's soaking wet. Like, why would you do that? True worship is not always practical. True worship is not always practical. We learn just how lavish this action is coming from Mary. Mary is pouring out easily the most valuable possession she has and takes down her hair, the highest and cleanest part of her, and uses it as a wash rag on the lowest and filthiest part of the man who resurrected her brother from the dead. She is not thinking about anything else except how much Jesus deserves this. You gave me my brother back. I Take the ointment. I don't, ointment, my hair. I don't care. You, I want you to have all of it. You have the power over death. This ointment is, is worthless to me. You're all I want. And Jesus, fully aware of both of their hearts, does not let Judas get away with talking to her like this. Verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas, leave her alone. Leave her alone. 
You say to take care of the poor. That's a good thing. You should take care of the poor. It's good to take care of the poor. Deuteronomy 15 verse 11 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, another therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Jesus is almost is saying a statement that is so close to what is being said in Deuteronomy. The poor you will always have with you. Deuteronomy 15, I will, you will never cease to have the poor. Therefore, again, cause and effect. Since you will never stop having poor, you should take care of the poor. It's, it, that's the law. The law says that. Matthew 25, verse 45b says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus is not saying you have to choose between Jesus or the poor. That's not what he's saying. Judas, if you're concerned about the poor, then serve the poor. That's a good thing because I commanded you in the law to serve the poor. But because the poor is always with you, you should serve. But while I'm here, you should be more like Mary. Now, when it says, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, there is a lot of debate over what that it is. So she may keep it. Like, what is that it? Like, there's a lot of debate over it. Some say that the it is in reference to the ointment. Like, leave her alone, Judas, so that she may keep the rest of the ointment for the day of my burial so she can anoint me. I don't think that's what it is. The text seems to be pretty, like, pretty clear that she is pouring out a pound of nard on Jesus' feet. Jesus is not speaking about the ointment specifically, but rather keeping her utter awe, trust, and joy in Jesus at his grave. This action of anointing is in response to what Jesus did for her brother. Jesus is telling Judas, be quiet because I'm going to die soon. I'm going to be gone. And when all hope seems lost, I want her to have this moment. I want her to have this moment. I want her to remember that the man who will die on the cross has the power over death. The man who is dead has the power over death. So be quiet so that she can keep her hope in me. Judas is the worst. Verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus was the most tangible example to date of Jesus' power and authority. It was a man who was legally, physically, emotionally, geographically dead. Everyone knew it. He was dead for four days, and now he's alive. He is a tangible example that this guy, Jesus, has the power over death itself. Lazarus being alive was an active catalyst for belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Ergo, the chief priests wanted him gone, along with the man who resurrected him. Lazarus has to go. 
And that's, that's where it ends. Jesus has revealed himself once again and is a mere six days away from the cross. I want to leave you guys with a few reflections. If you didn't hear anything up to this point, we covered a lot, but if you didn't hear anything up to this point, I want you all to leave with at least these three things. Number one, Jesus is deserving of the very highest of us. Mary didn't care. A year's wages, gone. She didn't care. Her beautiful hair, it doesn't matter. I don't care, Jesus. I have my brother back. I witnessed you have power over death. You are God. I want you to take everything. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, Oh, death, where is your victory? A lot of you guys know this one. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no sting because God stripped it of its power. Why on earth would we not lavish our king with all that we have? It's his anyway. Jesus deserves the very highest of us. Number two, people can can be fully immersed in Christian culture and never truly know or worship Jesus. That's a a lot, like even reading that, I'm like, whoa, but it's true. Judas walked with Jesus daily for three years Three years. He saw the face of God for three years. He heard him. He walked with him. He served him. And eventually he's going to kiss him and turn him over to the authorities. Judas played a role in the greatest ministry in all of human history and didn't know Jesus at all. Christian culture does not equate to being a Christ follower. It just doesn't. Number three, true authentic worship is impossible to keep hidden. Like the ointment that filled the rooms of the house, so too is true authentic worship from those who adore their king. People see it. People know it. People know you walk with Jesus. We have students at an FSM all the time. It's like, well, how do you know? Do I just walk up and start preaching to someone? Is that how I spread the gospel? People see Jesus on you guys. They do. True, authentic worship is unmistakable. Others will see it on your face and in your life. As the band makes their way back up here, I want to ask y'all a quick question. And I want y'all to, obviously, I don't want y'all to answer this out loud. I just want you to kind of just process this. What is your greatest affection? I know a lot of y'all hold Jesus in very, very high regard. I know a lot of you know in your brains, and Jesus is king. Jesus is God. He died on the cross for my sins. He is Lord of all. I know you know that. But what is your greatest affection? What do you worship? Not just on Sundays. Not just when, not just when our talented team back here leads us in work. Like I'm talking about in the day to day. What do you worship? Jesus is worth the absolute 
highest of us. And when he is, our worship is so fragrant and so potent that is unmistakable to anybody who's near.